Hello and good evening and welcome to another episode of Religions, Regimes and Refugees and their multicultural mess and secular scam. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really honored. I hope you had a great day. Uh, and I know it's already morning for you guys. Um, but it, um, I hope you had a great day yesterday. And it's still yesterday for me because I'm, uh, I'm uh, way, way, way behind you guys. Uh, what, ten and a half hours? Ten hours? Something like that? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I haven't gone to bed as yet, and you guys are getting up now, so, <laughs> um, I hope you had a great day anyway, and a great night. Uh, so today we're going to continue on our series, um, of the Indian history. Uh, we started with the Arab invasion of, uh, we finished with the Arab invasion of, of, uh, Sindh yesterday, and we're going to continue on that uh, topic today. So let's get straight down to it. Once the Islamic Arabs invaded Sindh, then they said they are said to have left the population as long uh, as they paid the jizya tax to the Arabs. The, the typical Islamic story that is used to camouflage their agenda. Those who resisted were killed, the rebels and deserters from other groups who would have joined the Islamic invaders to form the alliance. Some tribes would have allied with invading our Arab armies to hold on to power. The Arabs then marched along the eastern flank of the Indus, Indus River. <coughs> Sorry about that. Onwards to uh, Ravar, Aror, once the capital of Sin, and then to Multan. So I don't know if I pronounce that right. Ravar, R-A-W-E-R, um, and Aror. A-R-O-R. -R. Once they conquered that land, they went on to Multan. By 713 AD, the Arabs had marched to the Jhelum River. Uh, Muhammad bin Qasim, who led the Islamic invasion, was taken aback, however, to his cal caliph. Um, he, he eventually was taken back. I apologize. Muhammad bin Qasim, uh, who led the invasion, Islamic invasion was taken back, however, to his caliph to eventually be killed after the death of Caliph Walid in 715 AD. The Hindu kingdom revolted against this invasion and resisted the Arabs to the western part uh, of the Indus. However, after this junction in history, Islam gained a foothold and never looked back, occupying the Indian subcontinent for 13 centuries where they still stand as of today. While we all look at a generic label of the Islamic invasion, in reality there were multiple warlords, governors, infighting, corruption, all for superiority and control of this very fertile land. Peace and tolerance, however, this region, as mentioned in the Arab Chronicles, did not exist. Everywhere you went to war between two rival Arab factions meant change in the balance of power, and therefore the rebellions and revolts. Arabs moved east towards central India, modern-day Gujarat and Rajasthan. However, this infighting cost them from controlling their occupying region for much beyond Sin, modern-day Punjab and Deccan. What came next was the Ghaznavid Empire from 977 AD to 1163 AD. This was the Turkic Mamluk Empire. Mamluk is the Arabic word for property or owned, meaning slaves. So Mamluk is used to depict slave soldiers in Muslim armies of non-Muslim origin. It's also used for slaves who went on to convert to Islam and then rulers. They went on to become a warrior caste of people like the Kshatriyas among Hindus. They had grades of power throughout Islamic colonial history. They also formed the Mamluk Sultanate from 1250 AD to 1517 AD or CE in Egypt and the Levant. It was the Mamluks who fought the European Crusaders from 1154 to 1169 AD. Um, as the Ghaznavid Empire was of Turkic origin, uh, a region that was earlier occupied by the Sassanid Empire, they spoke Persian. They were an extension, one could add, of the Persian Empire. They could, they continued the Persian literary tradition a lot more than the Iranian rivals. The second king of this dynasty is the most famous of, on the Indian subcontinent, not for what he accomplished, but for what he destroyed, Mahmud of Ghazni. 
He made several expeditions into Indian subcontinent, set up control to alliances, treaties, and vassal states, looted gold of the land and wealth. However, like all his ancestors who looted and killed and murdered and disfigured, uh, he too came to an end. After his death in 1030 AD, his empire crumbled within, a ten year, within 10 years of infighting between his sons and other claimants to the throne. After that, what mostly survived was the part of the empire in modern-day Punjab and North India. Most of this history of this empire comes to us from the literary source called tariq e Baihaki. At its height, it was controlled. Uh, it controlled Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Northwest India. The Ghaznavids were the empire that spread Islam through the through the sword into Northwest India. They gen generated a lot of wealth by looting Indian centers, cities, and villages. They also collected a lot of tribute from Indian princely kings. They finally lost out in 1186 AD to the Ghurids, who overthrew the Ghaznavids. The Ghurids were Buddhists who were converted to Islam during the time of the Ghaznavids, who Islamized the region during his reign. The empire was short-lived until 1215 AD. It spanned an area from Khorasan to Bengal, India in the east, um, to Bengal um, and to India in the east. It consolidated the Arab uh, Islamic invasion of India, after which Delhi became the capital and was used by succeeding empires. So that was a short um, that was a short uh, write up about the Ghaznavids. Now we come to the Delhi Sultanate. So Islamic colonialism did not stop here. It continued from 1206 AD and 15 to 1526 AD under what is really the longest of the imperial occupations of the subcontinent for 2000 years. Uh, the, Delhi, the Delhi Sultanates under five dynasties, the Mamluk dynasty from 1206 to 1290 AD, the Kalji dynasty from 1290 to 1320 AD, the Tughlaq dynasty from 1320 to 1414 AD, the Sayyid dynasty from 1414 to 1451 AD, the Lodi dynasty from 1451 to 1526 AD. Buddhism well went into a tailspin under, under this imperial imperial occupation with the problems that already existed on from the inside, they were almost wiped out. The Central Asians of the, by the 11th century were fleeing tsunamis of violence themselves. They came gushing down the steps into the Arab lands and into North Indian plains causing havoc and war, conflicts and genocide. Unfortunately, it's part of the history of Islam. That which is, if not reopened but glorified, will repeat itself. The less the introspection, the more chances of a repeat will happen. This along with numerous and other geological fault lines and its currents that influence, influence us on a daily basis. The hordes of Turkic nomads that came down from Central Asian steppes were conquered and made into slaves. Some joined the Islamic militia along the Silk Route willingly in hope of loot. The slaves were then used in Arab armies to maintain the inter intra Islamic civil wars, dynastic geopolitics, squabbles, and rebellions. These slaves rebelled eventually against their slave rulers and formed what is known as the Mamluk dynasties. This led to the Islamic Arab dynasties breaking up, leaving a void for the slaves to take over and become the sultans, starting with the Mamluk dynasty. They then conquered lands from North Africa to Afghanistan. They later turned their attention to the Indian subcontinent, which consolidated the Islamic colonial imprint on the land. Starting with the first sultan in Qutb, Qutb al-Din Aybak, I think we all know who he is, um, who was originally a slave under the, on the Muhammad Ghori. He broke away to establish his own slave kingdom, otherwise known as the Mamluks. The Delhi, Delhi Sultanate invaded um, and occupied most of northern India. They followed by the Kalji dynasty, who conquered most of central India. Under the Tughlaq dynasty, the Indian subcontinent was conquered for the most part. As occupiers and rulers of the land, they, they ruled the land and every local on it. 
those who did not fall in line with this Bedouin ideology of the sword, those that did not form an alliance with them were put down and killed. Their lands and their temples were taken over and destroyed. Those temples that were not destroyed were rebranded into Islamic mosques and madrasas to brainwash the locals with a new agenda. This this period is known by the worst genocide in his in um, in known history by the Islamic invaders. One in particular called Timur Lain. At this point, the territory of Delhi was conquered. Uh, was was considered very rich. In 1398, Timur invaded North India, ruled by the Tughlaq dynasty. After crossing the Indus River in September of 1398, it was one massacre after another until he reached Delhi and ransacked it for three days. The city reeked blood and decomposed bodies from the massacre. The heads of the victims are said to have been cut off and made into pyramids, while their bodies left for the vultures to devour. Delhi was never recovered until today from, this, that, from that disaster. Neither has the Indian government ever ta talked about this period in history for the sake of vote bank politics. The Marxist Indian government of the first 60 years of free India calls this a period of time when Indo-Islamic architecture was born. Sick? My goodness. A time of synthesis of Indian and Islamic architecture. In reality, Islam has no architecture on the Indian subcontinent. It has an ideology that was used as a front to invade all lands of Asia, Africa and Europe. All it did was rebrand existing civilizations. The mosque and so-called Indo-Islamic constructions are all Hindu. Buddhist temples that were rebranded and Islamic stamp put on the facade. Those, thus those who lost the geopolitical wars on the ground lost their lands. The locals became slaves. They were, were either killed and converted. The infrastructure on the ground was rebranded and now became Islamic. Others were forced to pay a high jizya tax and put under high economic pressure, which they eventually gave in to joining the Islamic dynasties and converting. The population is said to have steadily grown and multiplied during this period during, due to the influx of people from Islamic empires and kingdoms. A big cultural feature during this period was the language of Urdu, which emerged during this time. Today, the language is the national language of Pakistan. However, it emerged as a mix between Sanskrit, Prakrit, Arabic, and later Persian, a sort of a creole. The word Urdu is taken from the Tur Turkic word Urdu, O-R-D-U, meaning army. Okay? Along with Hindi, one of the national languages of modern India, they have combined to later form uh, what is known as Hindustani. The Differences between Urdu and Hindi is not much. They are basically the same languages based on Sanskrit and Prakrit, except Urdu is written with an Arabic script with Arabic and Persian influences. I will bring the reader back to an event and to explain this era, something that I have spoken about at the earlier part of this chapter. The volcano at 536 AD. Um, if one Googles uh, the earlier Quranic scripts, like we've spoken about, you will come across the Tubijin fragment, the Sana manuscript, the Codex uh, uh, Parisino, the Samarkand Kufi Quran, Topkapi manuscript, we've talked about it. You will notice that they're all written in the Kufic script. Um, the Kufic script is a derivative of Nabataean script, both Semitic languages. If you notice all the surviving manuscripts of the Kufic Quran, the letters are spaced out. One can see vertical and horizontal spacing lines, alphabets not all about the place or on top of each other. They do not intersect each other, definitely not boxed in with accents. As your handwriting is, is a polygraph and uh, an extension of your electromagnetic energy, the Kufic script shows that people of the era had respect for each other. Uh, they respected each other's space, energy, appreciate, appreciated each other's dignity. They were aligned, expressive, dignified, and not subjugated or enslaved. enslaved. They were free-flowing metaphysical currents and waves. They were not barbarians that Islam has made them out to be. However, now go to Quran, 
about approximately 400 years later. Uh, you will see vowels, accents, overlapping subjugation, an absolute civil war, genocide, and an absolute mess. If this was the religion of peace, the peace never came. Instead, they got war that was that which was invented and has nothing to do with Muhammad uh, of the people or the people of the time and definitely not his wisdom. Uh, so I've explained this part to you. Um, and the reason I'm bringing it up is that the 536 AD earthquake, a volcanic eruption, caused such devastation. Uh, like I said, they don't know where it is. But that shake of the planet, that shake of the electromagnetic axe of the planet, brought waves and waves and waves of, of people rushing down as of a huge tsunami, cosmic tsunami, um, came crashing to the shore. And with those waves came all these tribes from Central Asia. Um, and that's why you have such destruction, because these waves of, of invaders and from their writing, you can tell that they were very, very aggressive, corrosive, genocidal, barbaric. This is absolutely the 536 AD earthquake coming, the tsunamis coming ashore. Um, and unfortunately, these people converted to Islam. Islam has in its ideology and in its, in its uh, literature enough of violence to justify this so they found a safe haven in this ideology and off they came right down tumbling down onto the Indian subcontinent. Once we understand this phenomenon we can understand how by this time the forays of Islam into Central Asian steppes led to cat catastrophic events that boomeranged back onto the Arabs themselves and then onto the Indian subcontinent. There were many books written about this period for a variety of reasons. The Delhi Sultan Sultanate is also known for emphasizing on architectural projects and pushing for synthesis of Hindu-Islamic art. That is just one big falsehood to hide a rebranding of an ancient Vedic civilization into an Islamic civilization and keep modern-day Muslims on the Islamic ideological plantation. They cannot hide the tapestry of Vedic art below the surface, so they call it Hindu-Islamic synthesis, all in hope of to resurrect their empire. The more corrosive and barbaric they got, the more the empire eventually shrinked. The revolt started from the inside. As usual, the Shias versus the Sunnis and their subsects. Many Muslim governors revolted against their own dynasties and local geopolitics. Um, so basically, what I'm trying to say is one side they were butchering people, having genocide after genocide, building mountains of heads, rivers of blood, and then you're telling me they, they built all this classical Indo-Islamic synthetic uh, synthesis architecture. It's not possible, my dear friends, not possible. It was just rebranding. On the outside, one empire that arose in direct rebellion against this form of occupation was the Vijayanagara Empire. It lasted from 1336 AD to 1626 AD, nestled in South India. It brought about the galvanization of people to resist and stop the Islamic takeover over their lands and heritage. The Vijayanagara Empire was not successful in pushing back the Islamic invasions, but in standing out as the protector of Vedic heritage. It patronized art and architecture, literature and the world-famous Hindustani Karnatic music, evolved, and it evolved during time. It was well-governed using administrative principles that resembles our modern democratic states, with cabinets and prime ministers, imperial ministers, and 72 administrative departments. The empire was all was broken up into five administrative provinces. Each province was further divided into regions, countries, and municipalities. Tribute called poll tax in the Roman and Middle East was paid to the empire. Agriculture was the main employment sector. The armed forces recruited from all walks of life, and temple building employed thousands of workers. Intercontinental trade was with empires and kingdoms from far east to the Middle East was very profitable. Traders and merchants from different parts of the world came to the shores of the empire and settled there. 
The empire began its descent after its loss in the Battle of Talikota in 1565 and came to slow halt in 1614 AD. The final takeover by others was finally ended in 1646 AD by other powers, namely the Bijapur Empire, Sultanate, among other Islamic groups. On the Hindu ideological side, the post-empires of the Vijayanagar Empire were the Mysore Kingdom, the Kingdom of the Ginji, the Nayakas of Chitradurga, the, Nayak, the Nayaks of Madurai, the Keladi Nayak, and thus came to an end one of the most influential empires of Hind from the times gone by. Her currents, however, still form the waves that we see today. Um, now we come to something very important that I think, you know, everyone can talk about, not just me. The one and only Mughal, Mughal Sultanate. I'm sorry, but I just want to throw up every time I hear this, wo this word. Um, ask anyone in the Indian subcontinent and they will tell you who the Mughal Empire is. The reason being we are all brainwashed in our schools and colleges that the Mughal Empire was the best thing that happened to the surface of the planet and the cosmos. The very fact that the subcontinent is not exactly paradise means only one thing. The Mughals were anything but paradise. The empire is believed to have commenced by a tribal lord from Central Asian steppes, modern-day Uzbekistan. He was called Babur, born Zahiruddin Muhammad. He was born in the Fergana Valley to the governor of the land. His mother tongue was Chagatai. He was very fluent in Persian, a language used by the Timurid elite. He was the great-grandson of Timur, or Timur another Turkic warlord. Timur claimed descent from Genghis Khan and tried to restore the later empire. Uh, Timur was a Muslim and tried to convert his empire, as well as the warriors and clansmen of his time, to Islam. War was in his blood and pre-sanctioned. His ancestors bore down heavily on cities like Samarkand and Bukhara. It was seen as the worst assault on Islamic lands by non-Islamic forces. However, when Timur ancestors converted to the Islamic movements of the time, the war was never stopped. Only this time, the warfare was now became sanctioned by an Islamic god in the name of Jihad. Thus, the founder of the Mughal Empire, Babur, was no different. In 1494, Babur ascended the throne at 12 years of age after the passing of his father, but faced a revolt in his own family. He lost Fergana and much of the territory his family once ruled. He spent many of those early years in exile. In 1497, he attacked the city of Samarkand, but lost his hometown of Fergana due to internal revolts. Um, Babur tried to recover it, but lost both Samarkand and Fergana in the bargain. In 1501, he regained control of Fergana, but lost it again. Babur concentrated on building an army uh, this time, and by 1544, he was able to cross into the Hindu Kush mountains and take Kabul. The next 20 years were spent forming alliances, uh, conquering towns, losing them, and reconquering lost and gaining new territories. Finally, by Feb 1526, after having assembled a 12,000 army, um, 12,000 strong uh, army, Babur said sent his army to invade India and then the occupant and its then occupant Ibrahim Lodi. The encounter was led by 17-year-old son Humayun. This led to the first battle of Panipat in April of 1526 AD. Lodi was slain and Babur captured the cities of Delhi and Agra. He and his army then went about plundering cities and towns of their riches and slaying anyone in sight. Um, here, Babur came face to face with the nobility of Gwalia, who lost their Maharaj in the battle. As a tribute to, the, to ensure their safety, he was given the Koino diamond, uh, the largest diamond in the world. Babur now spent the next four years conquering the Rajput kingdoms of the land. He, con he considered himself a holy warrior, just like the Christian Crusades. While he conquered and took over some Rajput kingdoms, he managed to stitch together an alliance with others. While collecting tribute from those in return who did not ally with him, 
for from the small kingdoms maintaining their for the small kingdoms to maintain their traditions and principalities. Um, he now controlled a vast territory in northern Hindustan in what is the area around the Gangetic Plains. Babur lavishly did not go unnoticed. He drank a lot and smoked opium. He also indulged in, in supposedly creating architectural marvels out of which he we have the now famous Babri Masjid destroyed in 1992. However, I invite the readers to go over this chapter again and see if Babur indulged in building anything in the lands he previously occupied or did he have time and the finances to build the structure so fast that is four years after invading a region. So what else did he build if this is the Babri Masjid? What did he build? He built nothing. He was always in war. From the time his father died, he was in war, trying to consolidate the land, trying to, you know, finding refuge because he was a refugee. He was kicked out of his own land. So how did he build the Babri Masjid? This was never a Babri Masjid. It was a Rajput temple. Uh, in my opinion, um, the Babri Masjid is not a mosque, but a Rajput structure that was acquired through alliances or through war loot and converted into a mosque. Babur died in 1530 AD, four years after conquering Hindustan. He was initially buried in Agra, but later transferred to Kabul, now in Afghanistan. Babur was succeeded by his son, Humayun, born Nasruddin Muhammad, who, who was only 22 years at age, of age at that time. He ruled over the Mughal Empire that stretched from Afghanistan to modern-day Bangladesh from 1530 AD to 1540 AD. Like his father, he lost his kingdom from 1540 to 1555 AD. Humayun escaped to Persia with his wife and some loyalists. He allied with the Safavid Empire, the jostling for power and alliances formed and paved his way for a comeback in 1555 AD. He lasted, however, six months. In January 1556, he tripped on his coat while coming down the stairs carrying books and fell down, hurting his head. He passed away three days later. It is important to note that like the Mongol pre predecessors, Babur divided his kingdom, his, his empire, between his sons, and this always caused an internal civil war for totalitarian power, and the control of his lands and resources within different concubines and the descendants of the family. That which spilled out into a civil war for the society and the region as a whole. So Humayun got rid of his brothers. The civil war was would lead to a vacuum where the external enemies would take over and eventually destroy the empire. So violence and chaos, slaves was the standard of this time and era. The violent currents of the Central Asian steppes from the invading and chaotic tsunamis and the colonial waves onto the Indian subcontinent. Humayun was succeeded by his son, the third emperor, Akbar. It's only with the emperor Akbar that the Mughal Empire really took off. He was a strong general and emperor. His empire would go on to unite and control the bulk of the Indian subcontinent. He is therefore known as Akbar the Great. Born in October in 1542 A.D., he resigned from 15. He reigned from 1556 to 1605 A.D. Akbar is said to have established a stable economy, a centralized administration. He is said to have created a, a real secular and harmonious state of the Indian subcontinent. Look more closely, and you will see a clearer picture. Currents and waves do not stop, my friend. They continue eternally on the ground while the Indian government and the Islamic establishment whitewash all the sins of Akbar. He is portrayed as a savior. But the trauma of this time still rings in our mind today. Perhaps power, as I have mentioned, is not homogeneous. Power is heterogeneous. So at the top of the pyramid, alliances will be formed with a variety of groups and subgroups to maintain power in the hands of those on the top. A moment that the alliances break, the moment the alliance breaks, there is civil war and an alliance is formed with someone else. 
So subgroup upon subgroup, meaning everyone has, ha has a hand in someone else's pocket. On the ground, the gullible population is fed with some nonsensical ideolo ideology and made to believe they are unique and different, resulting in the necessity of living in clusters away from those who do not form part of the alliance. These alliances involved a lot of sons and descendants of concubines of Turco-Mongol empires. Those alliances with Hindus or non-Muslims were forged through marriage. Those who revolted against him were killed and their women were taken slaves or for his harems. He is said to have 5,000 women at a time in, the, in these harems. Harems are what we would equate today with prostitution dens. Akbar is said to, to love literature, but he was illiterate. Goodness, I don't know how that happened. Uh, after 52 years of reign, uh, filled with battles of raids and terror, from killing his own gra uh, guardian to his own generals who went against him, none of it was related to, related to us in our history books. The proof that he engaged in constant campaigns of war com comes from a very simple fact. In 1562, Akbar asked his treasurer for 18 rupees, a very small sum of money even back then. However, his treasurer replied that the treasury was, an absolute, was absolute empty and even such a small sum was not available. So where's all the money he collected from his loot rate and raids and on his rivals? Well, as with any nation or entity, your biggest expense is your budget and most important is defense. You engage in a constant battle. Your defense and spending goes up. Therefore, if Akbar did not have any money in his treasury in 1562, his defense budget was humongous. The more money he needed for war meant the more money he had to make up and the more land he seized. It was a double-edged sword. So you know he was always engaged in some type of battle, killing some side or the other. A big deal is made in our Indian history books about Akbar abolishing taxes on Hindus for a more secular state. In 1564, he abolished the pilgrim tax on non-Muslims, which was appreciated by his Hindu friends' uh, alliances, who were, like I said, in his alliances the most. It was seen as a gift to buy their loyalty. How did he do the same if he had no money in his treasury? Another aspect from was from the 1560s to the mid 1570s, Akbar lavished many favors on the Islamic orthodoxy in, in form of land grants as well as financial gifts. His beneficiaries were mosques, Islamic trusts, dargahs and hospices. The goal was to win their favor as they had control of the Muslim masses and also to wean away from their loyalty to the Afghan rulers who preceded the Mughals. All this cost Akbar cost money that Akbar did not have. Thus, when they say the Akbar re reworked the administration and economy, it was to collect the most amount of taxes for his civil society, for his war efforts, to win over the Islamic orthodoxy to his side and constantly acquire as much as land as possible. The tax rate of the Mughal Empire was so high that Abu E. Fazal, who was the biographer of Emperor Al Akbar says that there was no moral limits that could be set on uh, revenue collection. The subject was to be thankful even if he had uh, he was made to part with all his possessions by the protector of his life and honor. He also mentions that so much is taken from the peasants that even dry bread is scarcely left to fill their stomachs. Chapter six point one from the author Ifan Habib. This is where I get it from, okay? Revenue collection dependent on many features, that is type of crop you cultivated, the price level of those crops, the share of the zamindars, as well as administrative control of the land. If your village or sarkar was allied with the governor, then your taxes went down. If not, your taxes were increased. Muslims got a lesser rate, However, if you were an Islamic tribe or group that were not in his alliance, then you paid the big price. Tax subsidies and grants were also based on the same principle. In 1579, Akbar abolished the jizya tax, 
again and interpreted as his love for Hindus and his family occupied as his family occupied Indian homeland. Of course, that did not trickle down to the people below. They did not have the internet in those days to spread the edicts to all areas of his vast empire to benefit from the new law. Besides, taxation had many layers. The local ulama who benefited from this would never have let go. Look closely and you will see that Akbar was tired of the orthodoxy and the limitations they put on him. He was also an opium addict and a heavy alcoholic. He had 5,000 women in his harem and they cost a lot. So abolishing the jizya was not so much his love for the Hindus as it was a way to wean power away from the ulama. The ulama were all about power. Power comes from money. If there's no money, there's no power. So after all his favors, he bestowed on them in the beginning. Their power grew to an extent that it was it hampered his own feudal authority. In reality, in 1975, in in 15 sorry, I put 1975. In 1575, Akbar created a hall called called the Ibadat Khana at Fatipur Sikri. It means a house of worship but he used the same as a place of discussion with the ulama. It turned into a shouting match. <laughs> as if we've not heard that one before, we're still shouting even today, 500 years later. It turned into a shouting match, and Akbar invited theologians from different religions to partake in dialogues. It, this enchanted with his orthodoxy. Uh, with, this, with his orthodoxy, Akbar then abolished the jizya tax, uh, to take away power from the ulema. In 1582, he then created his own religion, a synthesis of many religions on the subcontinent, with himself as the supreme head. This did not go down well with the Islamic orthodoxy of the land, who Akbar, who considered Akbar a heretic. Deen al-Ilahi, as a fate, died out with Akbar in 1605. However, after this time, the empire would never be the same again and down the downward slide began. Akbar is known for his good relations with non-Muslims, especially Hindus, from art to literature, to administration, to religious customs. As I mentioned earlier, power is not homogeneous. There is no such thing as Hindus in, in such that Hindus uh, means anyone who lived on the Indian subcontinent. The word used was actually Hindustani, and was a wide spectrum of people, groups or subgroups, ideological and political groups. Even Afghans were called Hindustani, meaning from subcontinent of Hindustan. To please your people in your alliance, you have to grant them favors to keep them in your fold. More for power than your, the love you have for them. Um, when you reach your height, you force up yourself on weaker sections of the society and you force a conversion on them then brainwash them for 10 generations and then they won't have a clue who they are anymore. As an anecdote, Akbar was a great libertarian who tried to synthesize various factions on the Indian subcontinent and is seen as a villain in the Pakistani textbooks. He is seen as a threat to the Islamic identity, submission and suppression, conversion and supremacy of the Islamic identity and religion. He's basically not spoken about in Pakistani textbooks, but his grandson Aurangzeb, who was the cruelest of all the Mughal kings, is glorified as the foundation of the Pakistani Islamic identity. Akbar passed away in October of 1605 AD. He was followed by his son Prince Salim, also known as Emperor Jahangir. He was 36 years of age at that time and reigned for 22 years. Jahangir's ascension to the throne was not without internal family strife. His elder two brothers died from alcoholism. He was challenged by his own prince, uh, own son, Prince uh, Mirza, Kurasau Mirza, who was then caught, blinded and killed by another son, Prince Kuram, the future emperor, Sajahan, uh, who would go on to build the Taj Mahal. Prince Kurum would go on to challenge his father for the throne, but had to give up and was brought back into the fold. Jahangir's reign was, uh, was more orthodox than that his father. He was not as tolerant as of the other sects in faith, although there were some histories um, 
do talk about him as promoting non-Muslim festivals, banning cow slaughter in Punjab. His worst battles came against the Sikhs in Punjab. Again, it is not one size fits all, I, I would like to repeat. The subcontinent is a huge vortex. You cannot generalize any con uh, concept, meaning if the emperor accorded those concessions, it was not about alliance. Uh, accord accorded some concession, it was for those only in his alliance. Those who were not in his alliance, including Muslims, uh, got the orthodox end of his politics. Historians are, are not sure what to make of Jahangir. However, one thing for sure was that he continued Akbar's war policies of conquest and expansion. It cost him and his treasury by the time of his reign. Uh, by the time his reign came came to to an end, twenty two years after his ascension, his son, the Emperor Sajahan, came to the throne with no money left whatsoever. Like his predecessors, he indulged in wine, opium, and an an opium addiction. Jahan gave the next king indulged in architectural displays of his wealth. In Agra, the tomb of Itmad Uddawla, completed in 628, the, the Begum Shahi Mosque in Lahore, the Shalimar Gardens, although not as much as his father Akbar, Jahangir died in Kashmir uh, in 627 after a severe cold. He was followed by his son Prince Kuram, who took the title of Emperor Sajahan. Born in 1592 AD in what is now Lahore, Pakistan, he was attracted to his grandfather, uh, who tried to a great grandfather who tried to emulate once he was on the throne. Sajahan was raised by Akbar's wife, Rukaya, who he raised as a future king. He returned to his father, the Emperor Jangir, and his biological mother upon his grandfather's death. Being um, on the third, being third in line to the throne, he was he had to emulate his ancestors in other ways too. He had to fight his father and his elder brothers of the, for the throne. A civil war that spilled out of spilled into other areas um, of the empire as well as on his budget. At twenty years, Sajahan was married to his first wife, Empress Mumtaz Mahal, who would later be die giving birth to the fourteen child. When Sajahan ascended the throne in 1627, his coffers were empty. His official historian, Casavini, writes that when the Emperor Akbar died, he left seven crore rupees uh, to his son Sajahan, out of which the latter spent six crores besides the gold and treasures left. So many an eyebrow has been raised when he asked about what was being the driving force behind Mughal architecture. His biggest budget was the armed forces, with almost 1.1 million in the armed forces personnel. He continued the expansionist policies of his predecessors. His principal adversaries were the empires in the Deccan, southwest India, the Portuguese on the west coast, and the Sikhs in the northern province. Like his predecessors, Sajahan indulged in opium and alcoholism. The harems of the time were also a costly expense. Which, where, where did he get the money from? Other rebranded contributions to architecture by Sajahan are as follows. The Red Fort, the Jama Masjid, expansions on the, on the Agra Fort, the Lahore, Pakistan, Moti Masjid, the Wazir Khan Mosque, and the Shalimar Garden, sections of the Lahore Fort, and the Mahanbad Khana Khan Mosque in Peshawar. His stepmother was overlooked the construction of his father's mausoleum also in present-day Pakistan. Sajahan became ill in 1658. His eldest son Dara Shiko took over the administration of his em empire during his father's illness uh, to the dislike of his other siblings. Dara Shiko was seen to be liberal, building ties and for forging relationships like many, like that of his great-grandfather. However, this became a foundation for the family's civil war between his sons and spilt over the empire. The surviving brother and future Emperor Aurangzeb was the winner of that civil war for power. It led to Emperor Sajahan being imprisoned until his death in January 1666 AD uh, by his son Aurangzeb. He was buried near his wife in the Taj Mahal. Thus came to an end one of the better known benefactors of the Mughal Empire. 
He was succeeded by his son, who institutionalized a reign of terror. An emperor who was glorified by modern Pakistani literature and the country, and contrary to the modern-day India, where he is seen to be willing. Aurangzeb was fighting for the survival of his empire. He used the best weapon in Islamic history, narrative, jihad and jizya. A perfect recipe for feudalism and genocide in what, and that is exactly what happened. In the second decade of his reign, Aurangzeb faced an uprising from Hindu Maratha empires on the southwest coast, based out of modern-day Maharashtra. In the north, he faced a revolt from other Sikhs. Where they all were the allies of the Mughal, the Rajputs who form alliances on the ground rebelled against Aurangzeb. With no money in his coffers, he had to bring the Islamic orthodoxy to his side and buy their favor. Um, they, there he had to reinstate the Jizya tax on Hindus in 679 AD. A sign to the ulama that he was on their side and he wanted to expand the Mughal Empire on Islamic grounds. Uh, only he faced a revolt from non-Muslims and Hindus. This led to the to the destruction of temples, forced conversions, discriminatory taxes on Hindus compared to that levied on Muslims. There were some mosques he is said to have destroyed too. It all depended who you asked for, um, uh, whose alliance you were in. Uh, Aranzib spent two decades of his life pushing back the revolt of the Marathas. This led to a revolt from, from the Muslim classes to bring about the empire that took his side. The cumulative occupation and, and colonization of the Turco-Mongol Mughal Empire, culminating in its worst empire, um, Emperor the Emperor Aranjit, uh, concrete effort on the party of the natives of the Indian subcontinent to rid them themselves um, rid her shores of their colonial occupation. Uh, people of all groups and subgroups, Muslims and non-Muslims alike revolted, rose up, and the end was just a matter of time. It meant that Emperor Aranzib's sadistic imprisonment of his rivals, their torture, and their ultimate death was also led to an ultimate revolt and crumbling Mughal Empire. Mm -hmm. um, all the, re the revolt were his half-brothers, um, Maratha King Sambhaji, son of Sivaji Maharaj, the Sikh Guru Tej Bahadur, members of the Dawoodi Bora Islamic sect of Islam, uh, all stood up against Aranzib. In 1670, Aranzib ex executed Sikh uh, Guru Gobind Singh, who was against forced corrupt conversions and oppressions of Sikhs and Kashmiri Pandits. By 1699, the Khalsa sect of uh, Sikhs were formed uh, to rid uh, of, these re of the region of the Mughal oppression. The Pashtun is now what northwest Pakistan is called, and Baluchistan revolted in 1672, AD due to the rape of local women. Um, it also provoked a rebellion which went out of control uh, by 674. So thus came to an end an occupation of the Turco-Mongolic barbaric... Um, sorry, I lost it a little bit. Uh, in 1670, Aranjab executed the Sikh Guru Gobind Singh, who was against forced conversions and oppression of the Sikhs and Kashmiri Pandits. By 1699, the Khalsa sect of the Sikhs were formed to rid the region of the Mughal oppression. The Pashtuns in what is now northwest Pakistan and Baluchistan revolted in 1672 due to the rape of local women. It provoked a rebellion which went out of control. By 1674, the Maratha rebellion took effect in the Deccan, a region now known as the modern state of Maharashtra. The movement eventually became an empire and replaced the Mughal Empire after Aurangzeb's death in 1707. The Mughal emperors, though they existed, were only figureheads until 1757. Thus came to the end and end in occupation of the Turco-Mongol barbaric rule, the scars of which still exist and affect the Indian subcontinent today. This era is too large to fit into a small chapter.
There are many books written on the subject which will give the readers at many angles of this era of history. If you ask most Islamic and scholars and apologists, you will get the standard story. Don't believe what these Islamophobe lies tell you. Islam came to India, the Indian subcontinent to Sufi states, and they came to spread peace. Right, you say, how come you change? How come you have hardly any Sufis anymore? And silence. They have no answer for or some gullible reply, like you don't understand. You cannot ask that or that's Islamophobic. Let me explain. Sufis were invaders too. The Ottomans were Sufis. They backed their way through 700 years of history. Sorry, they hacked their way to 700 years of history. Every Sufi hid behind an imperial army. So the stories of Sufi saints having a dream uh, that Allah wanted them to spread the message of God are tale and tales of legends and nothing else. Tale, a tale that every Muslim and non-Muslim alike falls for. Here is a fact on the ground. The Indian subcontinent was very rich, stinking rich with palaces, gold and diamonds and a lot of knowledge, medicines and universities. Everyone wanted to come to the Indian subcontinent. It's like saying today I want to go to America. Back then it was the other way around. Every trader wanted to pass by and earn a fortune in Hindustan. Fortune favors the bold, as the saying goes. Uh, they did not come to spread Islam, they came to trade, loot and make big bucks. All traders believed in some type of divine intervention and came up with stories and dreams to sell their goods and services in the name of divine intervention. If they went back, the riches earned by the, on the subcontinent inspired many an adventure and invasion along uh, with its now famous colonial empires, uh, turned perfect religions of God and peace. This is how Islam came to India, with the sword, by the sword, for money and power. Now that they have raped the land of the free and looted the wealth and knowledge, all of a sudden, they are against this big satanic cult. They have no problem when, their wealth, when they needed her wealth, fortune, knowledge and her wombs to spread the colonial cult. Once they got the loot, then they needed to force a subjugation to control their slaves. However, did God give so much wealth and knowledge to the Kufr, you ask, if he was really on your side? That was then, this is now. So you must admit, unfortunately, life is cyclic. What goes around comes around. So I thank you so much for listening to me today. It's been a long chapter. Uh, but they have a lot of history on the Indian subcontinent, the Mughals and the Islamic invaders. Uh, what can I say? It is what it is and we have to say it, repeat it, understand it, research, please research, research, research. Everything I said, everything more that you can find because history repeats itself. We are cyclic. Remember currents that form the waves. The waves don't stop and neither the currents. You have to offload the baggage. You have to clean the seas, clean the oceans and you will be free. So thank you so much for your time. I hope you had a great uh, uh, evening and a great morning. And we'll see you tomorrow as um, with another topic, uh, a continuation of the history of India. Thank you so much and stay safe everyone.